start with healing the individual, provide medical interventions. And that's how I see transcendental meditation, a medical intervention, just like any medicine, but much healthier and give everybody those tools to heal their trauma and also to actualize the full potential of the brain. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. Okay, today's guest on the show is Bob Roth. Bob is one of the most experienced and sought after meditation leaders in America. Over the past 45 years, Bob has taught transcendental meditation to many thousands of people and is the author of the 2018 New York Times bestseller, Strength and Stillness, The Power of Transcendental Meditation. As CEO of the David Lynch Foundation, Bob has helped bring meditation to more than a million students in underserved schools in 35 countries, to military veterans and their families who suffer from PTSD, and to women and children who are survivors of domestic violence. Welcome to the show, Bob. Well, well <laughs> wonderful to be here with you, Drew. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor. Um, Bob, I'd love to start out. I, I know you're, you've talked about how you came from a very political family growing up and you went to school at Berkeley. I'm just curious, how did you discover transcendental meditation in your own life? Well, it's an interesting thing. Like if you would have been, I've been meditating for 50 years and teaching it for almost that long. And if you know, you would have known me back in high school in the 60s. I'm the last person who would have been involved in meditation. I, um, at least the way meditation has been commonly understood to be. I did grow up in a very politically minded family. I worked for Senator Bobby Kennedy uh, in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area when he was running for the Democratic Party's um, presidential nominee, uh, particularly to be on the on the California ballot that way. And, um, I really thought my future was going to be in politics because I always I was raised in a family. We wanted to change the world. And I thought my future was politics because the way you change the world was through legislation. And I saw Bobby Kennedy speak in San Francisco on June 1st, 1968. And I was very inspired. And then four days later, he was assassinated in Los Angeles. And that was a turning point in my life because I decided to go to the University of California. I was attended I was accepted to the University of California at Berkeley in the fall of 1968, and I decided I wanted to become a United States senator like Senator Kennedy to change the world. And Drew, it took me about one month at Berkeley to realize that politics was never going to heal the soul of the nation. And that if I wanted to, I'm interested in politics, but if I wanted to you know, find a way forward to make a change. My mom was a school teacher and I thought, well, how about if I write educational curriculum? How about if I develop a curriculum that can be utilized in schools all over the country, particularly for kids? We used to call them inner city school kids. I will make this short, but I thought, okay, let's work. Let's change lives one at a time through educational curriculum that would give kids the tools to be able to navigate a very difficult and un unjust world um, that I saw particularly inner city school kids facing 
back in the 60s. So I'm going to school full time. I'm working full time. I am stressed. There's uh, army tanks parked outside on the street outside my door because of the Vietnam War protests. And uh, I was looking for something that I might do to be able to bring some equanimity to my life. Fast forward to the fact that I knew one guy at Berkeley who was not insane, who was normal and down to earth and clear thinking and a good person and smart and kind. And he was doing something called transcendental meditation was not a word in my vocabulary, but he told me I didn't have to believe in anything for it to work. So I thought I'll try it and I'll try it for two minutes. And if I don't like it, I'll quit. And I learned it took me an hour a day over four consecutive days to learn it. And it was so significant. It was physiologically gave my body such a deep state of rest and relaxation. And afterwards I felt clearer and more energized. And one of my first thoughts was, Oh, maybe this is the tool I'm going to teach those kids. And that was, uh, June 28th, 1969. Been at this a long time. Yeah. And now I hit up the David Lynch Foundation and we brought this, as you said, to a million uh, kids attending under-resourced schools. And we're also working with veterans and their families who suffer from PTSD, all, all the points you brought out. But I am really see now that the way forward as a, as a culture, as society, is not ever going to be some... Uh, for me, at least, machinations on a political sphere. There's so much uh, nonsense going on. But if you can equip through the healthcare system, children, kids, with two, and the rest of us with tools that can get heal the trauma of the past, wake up the creative networks in the brain, give a person more resilience to make the changes that have to be made in the area of healthcare, in the area of energy, in the area, the way we grow our food, all these things, then this is a tool I want to be part of. Absolutely. Um, Bob, you know, for, for anyone who's never done TM before transcendental meditation, could you maybe just give a brief explanation about what it is and how it maybe differs from other forms of, you know, mindfulness and meditation? That would be brief as contrast to what, how long I just took to say the first part. <laughs> no, you know, wherever it goes, it goes. That's yeah. fine. Um, I like to use an analogy of an ocean to, un- to explain different meditations. You're on a little boat and you're in the middle of the ocean and all of a sudden you get these giant 50 foot high waves and you could think the whole ocean is an upheaval, but whole ocean is an exaggeration, Drew, because if you did a cross section of the ocean, you'd realize that the turbulence may be on the 50 feet level, but the ocean is miles deep. And while the nature of the surface of the ocean may be turbulent, the nature of the depth of the ocean is pretty darn silent. And I use that as an example for the mind surface of our mind. Those waves are like all of our thoughts. Gotta got Some people call it the monkey mind. I call it the gotta, 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 gotta mind. And there are several types of meditation that try to bring equanimity to the mind by stopping thoughts or minimizing thoughts. It's the assumption is if you want to, if you want to have bring calm to an ocean, what disrupts a calm ocean waves. So stop the waves. You'll have a calm ocean. If you want to have a calm mind, what disrupts a calm mind thoughts. So stop thoughts or observe your thoughts as in mindfulness or observe your feelings. 
It's called, it's called open monitoring. Transcendental meditation, transcendental just means deep. Transcendental meditation recognizes that every human being has a vertical dimension to their mind and that deep within every one of us right now, there's a level where your mind is already perfectly settled and calm and wide awake. And TM gives access to that in the most effortless way. And there's a 400 scientific research studies that show the benefits to reducing stress and all the benefits to health that take those words that I just said out of the realm of sort of woo-woo, new age nonsense, oh, you have this field inside of you that's so calm, and shows it to be a transformative, very real physiological experience. Absolutely. Um, Bob, years ago, I heard um, something that has always stayed with me. I heard a line from the Maharishi where he said, do less, accomplish more do nothing, accomplish everything. And I'd love to just get your thoughts on what you think he meant by that, especially in this day and age where, you know, people are doing so much, um, you know, multitasking and trying to do more and more and more. What do you think the Maharishi meant by that? So Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was the uh, physicist who became a great meditation teacher and scientist of the brain and scientist of meditation and brought transcendental meditation to the world 60 years ago. Um, you know, those days when you don't, or those days you haven't got, you haven't slept well for a few days and just everything is off and you just feel like you're spinning your wheels and you're going a million miles an hour and you're getting nothing done. We've all had those experiences. Yeah. That's do more and accomplish less. Do less and accomplish more are those times when you're just in that flow Athletes call it the zone, but you just, you know, you're just, everything just falls into place. It's one of those magical moments. They don't happen too often, but we're just at the right place at the right time, or we get the phone call or just everything in ways that you could never have organized yourself. It just, everything sort of comes together. And that is a, Maharishi would say that the contrast, the first experience is a person who's highly stressed and disconnected from that inner silent level of consciousness of the mind and they're just going a million miles an hour and getting nothing done or not much done and and spreading chaos in their wake the other when you're doing less and accomplishing more is when there's you're just in a flow uh, transcendental meditation gives access to that transcendental meditation gives uh, uh, gives access to your deepest quietest nature and that deepest, quiet, deepest, quietest nature of Drew or of Bob or of whoever else, my deepest inner nature, it turns out, is an interface with the deepest nature of nature itself. I know that sounds funny, but if you go deep into nature, molecular level, atomic level, subatomic level, waves, energy for fields, then what physicists called the unified field. That's the deepest level of nature. That field where everything sort of the universe is orchestrated from, when I align myself with that in meditation, then my whole life seems to be less battling elements and more, they, as Maharishi said, supportive nature. Even to the extent where you do nothing and accomplish everything, you just have the idea and then things fall into place. You haven't even started. Now, for many of us, that's you know to an extreme. But we've all had the, those moments when just everything falls falls into place. 
Well, with transcendental meditation, that doesn't be, that's not just the exception that can become the rule. Beautiful. Um, Bob, I love the motto of the David Lynch Foundation, uh, change begins within. I mean, would you say that if we do want real change in the world, it has to start from within us? Yes, because, I mean, if you want to take it, and I, I'm a real, um, I should say that if you were, would think, at least in my day, of what a meditation teacher would be like, You'd say, oh, the guy's sort of into new age stuff or woo woo. And I'm not that guy. I, I've been meditating with TM for, as I said, for 50 years. I love science. I'm a skeptic. I love data. I love big ideas, love big ideas, but I like them to be sort of grounded and, and, and rooted in, in something real. And we now know, for example, that a child the first thousand days of a child's life from conception through the second through up to the third birthday, the traumas, the stresses, the toxic stresses that that uh, from from fetus all the way up to age three can be the most determined, give the most determining factor of their whole life of what's ahead. If, if they grow up in a violent household or drugs or neglect or they had uh, abuse heaped on them, their life after the thousand days, unless something is done foundationally, is pretty much set. It's a, it's a prison pipeline, it's a sickness pipeline, it's a drug abuse pipeline because of the trauma on the nervous system and the, and the prefrontal cortex not developing properly. So you go even from that standpoint, Government, you can never pass legislation and just say, okay, you know, everybody's going to be happy because you have a job. Well, trauma is foundational to how you handle your job for that child or even a veteran. There's a big focus now on veterans who come back from when they came back from combat and we got them a job at a bank or we got them a job at a local, you know, supermarket. Aren't we great? Well, they're carrying with them the trauma of those of their experience, either in childhood or combat and money, just money, having a job. They don't last. They don't last. So our thing is start with healing the individual, provide medical interventions. And that's how I see transcendental meditation, a medical intervention, just like any medicine, but much healthier and give everybody those tools to heal their trauma and also to actualize the full potential of the brain. We know the brain can get traumatized too, and then we're not using our most, the parts of the brain for problem solving, for innovative thinking, for decision making, for planning. So education should provide that, and healthcare system should provide those tools. So yes, change does begin within. We still have to have a better healthcare system. We still have to have a better way of, you know, fueling our cities, but it happens from within. It happens from the creativity from within a human being. That's great. And um, Bob, I know you've talked about your vision for the David Lynch Foundation as one of those visions is to disrupt the status quo of suffering. And um, you've told some great stories that you've, you know, that you've experienced along the way. I'd love you to talk about that whole notion of disrupting the suffering that is so prevalent, you know, in our world today. Well, I mean, if you just look at our healthcare system, our healthcare system is really a disease care system. 
it's really this uh, very expensive late stage when a person has come down or has a chronic illness, which is, you know, often impossible to deal with or acute um, anxiety. And we try and manage the symptoms. So we're saying, okay, the suffering that comes from that illness or the suffering that comes from, from the trauma, we're just going to manage it. We're going to give you some medicines that are going to uh, mitigate those symptoms, but never really getting to the source of it. If we want to disrupt the healthcare system, we disrupt the disease care system. We disrupt the disease care system by providing tools for actually preventing illness and allowing a person to become resolutely healthy, powerfully healthy. We take control back into our own hands for our own health rather than saying, oh, I've been eating cruddy for so long or this is now doctor, give me a pill. And then that pill, and I have to say, I'm not against pills. I'm not against medicines. They help a lot of people, but it's not the final solution, to use that term. It's not the ultimate uh, uh, approach. So if you look at it simply from the standpoint of um, healthcare, but I think it's even deeper. I think there's this assumption that, um, you know, suffering is part of life and depression and anxiety and it's just sort of part of life and you have to deal with it and you have to accept it. And many religions say the same thing. And um, I, I think when you read the ancient texts of meditation from these traditions, all sorts of wisdom traditions, they talk about the field of life deep within is a field of happiness, a field of bliss, a field of power. And when we don't access that, then, you know, we suffer. And when we do, we don't have to suffer. It's not built in. There's, we understand that there's two components to stress or suffering. One is the stressors, the challenges that come to us out from outside of us. COVID-19 is one, a sick child or a sick parent is another fight, fights within the home, changes in job. All these things are big, real stressors from outside. But how I handle that, that's called stress response, that I have control over. If I'm on top of my game, if I'm taking care of myself, if I'm eating well, if I'm exercising, if I am meditating twice a day, then what can overwhelm someone else, it's not a law. I don't, I don't have to be overwhelmed by that. I'm not insensitive, I'm very sensitive, but I'm resilient. And I'll tell you, uh, I don't know how much time I have. I have, I'll tell you one story and if there's time, I'll tell you another. But I, with the David Lynch Foundation, there's a lot of people who bring meditation to wealthier communities and that's fine. Everybody should have access to, to meditation. But my focus has always been on the under-resourced communities. And we were offering a program to, um, this was a men's shelter, a men's homeless shelter in uh, Harlem, in New York city. And a friend of mine came after he had taught this one fellow, Joseph and said, you really got to go meet Joseph. You, you just have to talk to this guy. So Joseph was about six foot four missing his two front teeth, skin like leather. Just he, you could tell he'd been outdoors outside. And, um, I, I, Mario, my friend said, ask Joseph to tell you the story. So here's a guy who'd been on the streets for 10 years, substance use addiction, a substance addiction. His story was 
he went, he had a master's in philosophy from Yale. And when he was at Yale, other friends, he didn't really have a drinking problem. He drank, but he wasn't a binge drinker, but he had a, you know, if he wasn't careful, he couldn't, he, he had to be careful of his drinking. So he comes out, he's got a master's degree from Yale in philosophy. And what kind of a job can you get? Well, you get a job on wall street. So he get this is like, you know, 20 years ago and, um, gets a job on wall street and he is working in the twin towers building, one of the twin towers. And five minutes before one of the planes hit the twin towers, he went out to run an errand and the plane hit the, the tower and everybody in his office, hundreds were killed. And he was the only one who was not killed. That experience, of course, you can't imagine the trauma. So I can't and guilt and all these other, why not? Why me? Why not me? And he starts drinking. Not a lot, but he starts drinking to deal with the, the stress. And then he starts drinking more. And then it becomes quite disruptive. And his company, the parent company, is giving him every opportunity. He can see a therapist. He can whatever, take time off. But he started drinking so much that his wife and uh, two ch children moved out because he was getting violent. And then, um, and then two months later he lost his job and a month later he lost his house. So now in six months he is homeless with no social safety net. And he lives that way on the street for 10 years. And then he, uh, gets part of this vocational homeless shelter, vocational shelter for men, which you sign up for a year and you can't, drink and you, you know, it's very strict and you get a training to get a job when you're done with that year. So the story is that when, and he's doing really well and he loves his meditation, loves it. So he tells the story true that when he was at Yale, one of the philosophical tenets that he loved in all different ancient wisdom traditions was this, un, this notion of an underlying unity to life, that we're not, you and I are not we but one, that there's a connection, love thy neighbor as thyself, any of these things. And he said his favorite aphorism when he was there in college was this statement that said, I am that, capital T, that, I am that underlying unity, you are that underlying unity, Everything around us has at its basis that underlying unity. And he told Mario and he told me, isn't it interesting that uh, uh, an aphorism that I intellectually understood and appreciated, it took me being homeless for 10 years and a drug addict to end up in a shelter where I would learn a meditation technique where I would have the direct experience of that underlying unity. Hmm. He said, the ways of life are so unfathomable. Do I have time for one more story? Please, yeah, please, Bob. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay, so we have a school, we, we, when it comes to kids, we offer um, a school, it's called, school program called Quiet Time. 
And that is where the kids begin and end each school day. The whole school is quiet. Whole school is silent. Um, begins 10 minutes at this beginning of the day, quiet, end of the day, quiet, during which time they could do, they could read silently, they could make, take a nap, or they could learn transcendental meditation. They have a choice. 96, 95% of the kids all want to learn to meditate because it's enjoyable and it's great and it's cool and it's fun and they love it. Well, in this one school in San Francisco, the way it's set up, the teachers set it up was the child had to be in the classroom on time when the bell rang, first period bell rang, in order to meditate in, in, with the classmates. Otherwise, they would have to do it in a hall in another room. And they all wanted to meditate together. And I got a phone call from a teacher. His name is Bruce. And he says, I got to tell you this story. Um, Charlene, this little girl, Charlene, this was a eighth grade class. Charlene, we'd started meditating. Charlene burst into the door, out of breath, three minutes into the meditation, sits, plunks herself down quite loud into her chair closes their eyes and starts to meditate. And the teacher said, you know, I had a choice to make. Should I go over, should I just let her be or should I make a, make a point? And he said, I really wanted to make a point. I want kids to be disciplined. I want, if you make a commitment, make the commitment. So he walked over and whispered to Charlene. He said, Charlene, I need to talk to you. Please step out. And Charlene stood up and um, she was obviously upset and she had on a a sweatshirt, a light colored sweatshirt, and there was red paint splattered all over the side of her sweatshirt. So they stepped out into the hallway and Bruce said to Charlene, um, you're going to have to meditate out here, but also I need you to call your mother because you can't come to school with paint all over your clothes. And with those words, Charlene burst into tears. And it turns out, Drew, it wasn't paint. It was actually blood. She had been standing next to her uncle at a bus stop and a car drove by and shot her uncle, didn't kill him, but shot her uncle. And that was his blood on her. Mm. And this little girl ran for her life and she had nowhere to run. I mean, she, she, she didn't, she didn't run home. She didn't run to a community center. She didn't run to the church. She ran to her school because she felt safe at her school and she wanted to meditate. And I think, I think to myself, how many kids are there in the world? How many kids are there in the world through no fault of their own who end up like Charlene? Mm. And I think about that all the time when I have this, we've got to bring these this, we've got to bring these interventions, violence interrupters, brain awakeners, stress reducers to everybody, but particularly children. We're in danger of losing an entire generation. The number two cause of death among teenagers in America is suicide. And the numbers are now going down to five and six years old. Mm. Wow. Bob, you know, for anyone listening who right now is listening to the show, who's feeling a little powerless, a little hopeless about their life, about their future, if, if they were sitting with you right now, what would be one thing that they could maybe do today to begin to take their life in a new direction? They're the basics that we have. In, if we want to take our life in a new direction, there are basics that we have to attend to. And it's, you know, sounds like, 
you know, advice from your grandmother or, or your parents or whatever, but they're basics before we really, and that is we really have to take care of our health. We really have to eat healthier. We understand now the impact of food on what's called in the, the microbiome in the gut and that eating bad food can, can actually bring toxins up into the brain that can lead to depression and anxiety. Just food. This is no, you know, sort of new age nonsense. The power of sleep, prioritizing sleep. I hope you aren't getting bored listening to this, but <laughs> no. when we don't get enough sleep, the body, the sleep is sacred. The body heals itself during those eight hours. That's the time the body can heal itself, the brain. It, otherwise, it just builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up. Exercise. And I think the idea of meditation in general and specifically transcendental meditation, I think it's no longer a luxury. It's no longer, you can't just say, well, I'm skeptical about all that stuff. I'm not interested. The science is way beyond skepticism. You shouldn't have to believe in the meditation for it to work. You don't have to believe in gravity for a tennis ball to fall to the ground. But you don't, so you don't have to believe in, at least in TM, for it to work. But there's so many profound, important benefits for, take, for on the one hand, taking more control of your life on the outside, but also reconnecting yourself with that, with your inner interior of life that gets lost in all the stress and craziness of the day. There's no one quick thing, Drew, but those are basics. And I think the most at the core is meditation. That's great. Um, Bob, my final question, if you had the opportunity to travel back in time, say 50 years or so, what words of wisdom do you think your current self might share with your younger self? Keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Be true to yourself and keep going. You, you, the only way you're sure to fail is if you don't keep going. You know, if you if you don't keep going, you're going to fail. So I would my thing would be true to your be true to yourself and keep going. That's what I would say. Bob, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Oh, I've loved this, Drew, and it's, <laughs> it's an honor to talk to you, sir. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for the the message you're you're getting out into the world. And um, anything I can do to be of service, you let me know. Thank you so much, Bob. Bob, what's the best way for uh, people to find out about you and, and your work? Well, I'm going to give you two uh, uh, web addresses, and I'm going to give you my own personal email address. So the two, to find out more about TM, you can go to tm.org, or you can also go to davidlynchfoundation.org but and this is my personal email that I'm giving you it's not doesn't go to someone else I am going to because Drew's such a good guy and you're good listeners um, it's bob at davidlynchfoundation.org and that goes to me and if you email me I will respond thank you for listening to the Drew Perlman show I hope you enjoyed today's episode in the words of Mark Twain 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, 
discover and stay well, everyone.